So now I have the great honor of introducing David, who's going to be coming up to preach. I'm like, I don't even know where to start with David. He was a distinguished professor of Christian ethics at Mercer, now retired, right? Are you like Professor Emeritus? I'm still there. Oh, you're still there. All right. Distinguished professor of Christian ethics there, also the chair of social ethics at the Free University of Amsterdam, former president of the American Academy of Religion, and a whole bunch of other major things, uh, written books like Changing Our Minds on Including LGBTQ Plus People, um, Kingdom Ethics, which, by the way, was my textbook when I took ethics in seminary at Fuller, uh, Still Christian, which was a more personal memoir of David's journey kind of getting kicked out of evangelicalism um, and what that cost him to stand with the LGBTQ plus community. And then just on a more personal note, like I said, I, I knew David's name first because he wrote my textbook. And then I found myself when I was, when I was kind of forced out and had to come out from the public seven, eight years ago, um, David was the one who was on the phone with me the morning that I came out, praying with me, um, was just a really good friend to both Ken and I and to our congregation as we were being born. And so I have a lot of gratitude in my heart for you, David. So with that, let's give David a warm welcome as he comes up to preach. Well, thank you. I am moved to be here. I believe this is my second visit. And a few things have happened since the last time. Um, uh, thank you, Emily, for that very kind uh, introduction. And thanks for the invitation. It's good to see you on this beautiful day here in Michigan. And um, it's good to be with my friends. This, I, I actually asked for the chance to be here today because I wanted to be with you again. Yeah. And, um, and we were going to fight, fight our way through COVID and be here. And I'm glad you're all able to meet in person again. Hello to the people at, at home on Zoom. Uh, I've had a chance actually to have a, at least one or two visits in the interim with Zoom events, but it's really good to be here in person. All right, um, we are going to be chewing over the passage Luke 18, one through eight, which was read so nicely uh, this morning. Um, if you have access to it on your phone or a Bible, you can look at it. I'm going to kind of give it a pretty good working over this morning. And um, if I were to give this, this sermon a title, it would be, Give Me Justice. But that's not what this text is usually called. Like if you have a Bible that has like titles, uh, you know, where the editors, uh, the modern English Bible editors have given uh, headings, this one might be called the parable of the unjust judge, or it might be called the parable of the importunate widow. The only problem with that is nobody has any idea what the word importunate means, so that's not a good start. But I think this is not fundamentally a parable, but it is a teaching about justice. And it's a teaching about uh, where Jesus positions himself in a world full of injustice. Uh, it's, it's a teaching about how much injustice corrodes faith in God and in one another. Um, it's a teaching about what it means to be followers of Jesus and how justice work is fundamental to that. But we were not taught to read this teaching in that way. 
We were taught to read it as pray harder, which is true, but it's not at all what there is to be said about this passage. This is not a passage that finds its way into the preaching program of many pastors. And I think that's because it talks explicitly about justice. The word justice is in pretty much every English translation of this passage. Um, many folk don't like to talk about justice in church. Many folk were once told, run as fast as you can away from any church that mentions justice. Um, and, but if you're going to deal with Luke 18, 1 through 8, you're going to deal with justice. Uh, it starts this way, then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. By the way, that is, an, is Luke's editorial description of what is coming. You might think of separating it from the actual story itself. It's kind of how we're told to hear the story, but it's only one way to hear the story, and it's part of, I think, how I hear the story. But one thing to remember is that chapter breaks were added later by the editors of, of the Bible. So it's always relevant to ask with any passage what just happened before, even if it was in the previous chapter. Well, what just happened before at the end of Luke chapter 17 is one of those um, little apocalyptic passages where Jesus is describing what's going to happen in the end. And it's, it's harrowing, you know, fire from heaven, you know, two are walking and one disappears, dogs and cats living together, all of that. What's the reference there? Ghostbusters, thank you. Uh, it's really important to me that people still know that reference. Because like if nobody had laughed, I would have felt old and I would have left at that moment. So dogs and cats living together, fire from heaven, hurricanes, floods, two are walking, one is left. And then Jesus tells them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. I think we know a little bit about apocalyptic scenarios in our country right now. Um, the sense that dogs and cats living together, fire from heaven, hurricanes, pandemics, New York Times headline today, one million dead. Uh, apocalypse doesn't seem so far away. He tells them a parable about their need to pray always and not lose heart. And so here's the parable. In a certain city, there was a judge. Actually, more literally, in a certain city, there was a certain judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. I'm mainly reading from the New Revised Standard, though I'm going to look at the Rudin translation along the way, too. Uh, in your program, it would be here. Um, in a certain city, there was a certain judge who didn't fear God or had respect for people, the Rudin translation, any compunction toward mankind. This actually, in Jewish context, is a shocking statement. Because what defined judges under Jewish law was fear of God and respect for people. This was a judge who had no fear of God and no respect for people. And so I would like us to start there, but also ask you to think about any experiences you have had in which you have engaged people with authority Parents, pastors, judges, police officers, clerks at the government building downtown, 
uh, who acted as if they didn't fear God or respect people, who, when you engaged them, treated you with what seemed to you to be contempt? Have you ever been treated with contempt by a person in authority? This passage raises that question. When this has happened to me or to any of us, we, we feel not only resentful but fearful. Because people in authority, especially positions of government authority, have great power. And, but parental authority, school authority, whatever you might name, we are vulnerable because of the power of people in authority. And we know that if they do not do their jobs seriously with, with uh, passion and compassion, that a lot of people are going to be hurt. People are completely at the mercy of those who have positions of power, unless power structures are set up in such a way with checks and balances in them. This is true of all positions of public responsibility. Judges, if you've ever been in, embroiled in the legal system, you see it definitely there. But judges, police officers, uh, uh, government officials like mayors, governors, presidents, attorney general, people in school like teachers and principals and school superintendents, they govern the institutions that we depend on for, the, for many good things in life. Romans 13 says that God set up such structures of authority because we need them for order rather than chaos. Um, but if these structures of order become tyrannical or unjust, then it's worse than chaos. It's disaster. Anarchy is bad. Tyranny is a disaster. Our specific context here is Israel. An unjust and godless judge in Israel was an affront. An affront to the God who made the law, who created the people Israel out of a slave people, in, enslaved people in Egypt. Jewish law was a breakthrough for the very concept of law in human civilization. The idea here was that unlike in Egypt or unlike in Mesopotamia, this was a people whose government was essentially under God and before God all were members of the covenant community. No one was above the law. No one was below the law. That what it meant to be Jewish, what it meant to be a part of the people of Israel, was to be devoted to practicing God's law together. And Jewish law, unlike any other law code that we know about in the ancient world, was formed out of the experience of oppression and enslavement. The Jewish people were a group of slaves who escaped from Egypt, who made it by the skin of their teeth out of Egypt, who found themselves in a new land, creating uh, a new kind of community. And from the beginning, because of the suffering in their experience and, and the, um, the loyalty that they had to the God who had rescued them, they were committed and ordered, you might say commanded, to be a different kind of community, a community in which um, all would matter, in which law applied to all people. Jewish law has a rich realism about power that many of us don't have. That societies develop imbalances of power based on all kinds of things that separate people from each other. Uh, gender or age, physical strength or military prowess, 
social connections or wealth. Law everywhere is perverted by those with power to reinforce their power. This happens in our society. I would say it is the default setting of every society. You have to work really hard to counteract it. The default setting of every society is that those with power create structures of law for their own benefit. So, but Israelite law was going to be different. This was going to be a kind of an experiment in human community that was focused on leveling power. One of the provisions for this, and I think it lies at the background of this particular story, was how land was to be handled. It was to be passed on from generation to generation within families and not able to be bought ultimately and sold and lost. Because land was the principal form of capital in this society, this, this provision to protect people's rights on their land was the most significant aspect, I think, of at least property law. So now we get back to our story. Judges were those who were responsible, especially, to look, look out for the interests of those who could be driven off their land. And more broadly, judges were responsible for looking out for the interests of those who could not protect themselves. So there was not really an understanding of like some kind of uh, impartial justice way above the clouds, but a, a justice especially interested in working on behalf of those who needed protection. So this meant for, for this system to work, you needed judges who had a heart. You needed judges who were especially attentive to the powerlessness of those at the bottom. And you needed judges who feared God. Now that language of fearing God is not language that we use that much anymore. But I think it actually is very helpful here and I want us to play with it a little bit. You, it has been said along these lines, only those who fear God learn not to fear people. In other words, only those who have a transcendent reference point and realize that ultimately they are answerable to God are those who are able to say to the bullies and the unjust people and those who want to exploit others or those who want to mistreat others, I am not afraid of you because I am answerable to God. And that could be something to strive for in any faith community. In fact, we should be striving for it. We are not afraid of you and your criticisms and your, your way of evaluating us because we are answerable to the God whom we are serving. So I think this helps to explain why the story begins this way. For Jewish law to work, you needed judges who feared God and respected people, all people, especially the people who no one else respected. And you needed judges who did not fear the powerful people in every village and community who might like to twist the, the law on their own behalf. It's not a bad instruction for all of us. And if you don't hear anything else, hear this today. Fear only God. Respect all people. With special attention to those who other people disrespect. And it's not bad instruction for anybody in a position of authority. Not just in ancient Israel. The, the mention of a widow here, it, 
expresses a concern that goes deep into Jewish law. Consider this passage from Deuteronomy. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Under systems of patriarchy, widows need special protection. Orphans, because they have no father, also need special protection. Strangers in any land need special protection because they're not from here. They have no kinfolk to protect them. Biblical law calls for impartiality in judging and qualifies that by saying, show partiality toward those who have no one else to protect them. That is the paradox at the heart of biblical law. Any parent knows this. Let's say you have three kids. You love them each equally, but each child has their own needs. It would be bad parenting to treat them exactly the same if they have their own unique needs and personalities. They all have special things that need to be done for and with and alongside them. The idea is that that's what justice looks like as well. Now the story gets interesting, verses 3 through 5. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him. I'll, I'll put the NRSV next to Sarah Rudin and see what they both say, okay? Remember, the Bible, the New Testament is in Greek, so we're just translating, right? This is the New Revised Standard. The widow kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, this is an interesting self-conversation. Hey, though I have no fear of God and no respect for people. Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming to me. I think what we have here is a widow who has a powerful enemy, somebody trying to push her around. I think the most likely situation is somebody trying to take her land, maybe on the basis of some kind of trumped-up boundary dispute or maybe a debt situation or something. Jesus casts no doubt on her case. He seems to assume that she is in the right. That's how he sets up the story. She's in the right, but she just can't get a hearing. Isn't that interesting about who Jesus is? The way he tells the story, he assumes that she is in the right, and he assumes that everybody listening will understand this kind of situation and will know all about people who get pushed around by those who have more power. And what she says is, give me justice. The word in Greek is a common word, a variant of the word decay, that a word that is usually translated righteousness in the New Testament. And I've, I've written that I think this is a major problem because when we hear the word righteousness, we think like moral goodness or holiness. If I say Emily is a righteous person, it may mean she's really cool, you know, she's so righteous, but we don't even know what that word means anymore other than righteous brothers, uh, really cool, a really good person, right? But the widow in this story is not asking for the righteous brothers. She's not asking for really like, I need a, you know, give me righteousness or holiness. What she's saying is, give me some justice. I need justice here. Precisely because it's hard to translate this passage as anything other than justice, it's probably why most Christian preachers don't want to touch it. 
that makes it even more critically important because it makes us see that Jesus taught about justice, just like the prophets before him. So the widow keeps coming to him, but the judge doesn't care. Why doesn't he care? Well, he doesn't, have, he doesn't fear God or respect people, but maybe he's getting a nice bribe from big man in town who is organizing this assault on this woman's property. So, so why would he care? He's getting something under the table. This happens a lot. Maybe he's just lazy. Maybe he's just naturally inclined to see things from the perspective of those who have money and power. I'm glad that doesn't happen in our society. So the widow's only strategy, because she's powerless, is to wear him out by her persistence. I picture it. It's a little village scene. Eight o'clock in the morning, uh, she's outside his window. He, he goes to work. Nine o'clock, uh, she's there. She sits in the waiting room. He won't see her. He leaves for lunch at the Jericho Cafe. She follows him over there. It's hot in Jericho, but that's what you got to do if that's what you got to do. Coffee break at the Jerusalem Diner. She's there. <laughs> Judge stops, you know, for a bathroom break. She's right outside. He goes home at night. She's outside the window saying, give me justice. Have I reminded you in the last five minutes how much I need you to give me justice? Finally, the judge relents, not because he cares, but because she wears him out. There's this interesting Greek word that is upo piazzo. Just try that for fun sometime. That word can be translated in any of these ways. Wear out, wear down, beat up, or treat roughly. So here's one way to translate this. Though I have no fear of God or respect for anyone, I will grant her justice so that she may not beat me up. So that she may not, the new Revised Standard has a footnote, that she may not slap me in the face. Have you ever wanted justice so much that you're that angry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah? Have you ever been mistreated so bad that nothing will stop you from demanding justice? Um, a feminist reading of this passage uh, raises an interesting point. There is a stereotype, it's even in the Bible itself, of the nagging woman. Sometimes when people hear this story, they giggle a little bit because it connects with that stereotype. The nagging woman. And there's all kinds of like synonyms for that phrase, which are not very polite. You know, it, so Jesus appears to be leveraging that stereotype, which you actually find even in the book of Proverbs. He's leveraging it. And, but what it makes me think of this time is, who is it that has to to repeatedly ask for what they need, people who are not empowered to get what they need. If you already have the power, you don't have to ask anybody over and over again what, for what you want because you already have it. So you know what I think this is? The stereotype of the pestering, nagging woman is a patriarchal stereotype by the people who set up a system so that women would have to... to, uh, to to have to maybe sometimes do that to have their rights vindicated. It's, and so what is Jesus doing with this trope? I think he's, I hope he's not just buying into it. I don't think he is. I think he's turning it upside down and saying, you know who God identifies with 
Every person whose basic human dignity and rights are routinely violated and who must demand some justice in a world where, where that so often is denied them. Jesus is identifying with the woman. He's certainly not identifying with the unjust judge. And this is how the parable ends. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? In the translation you have in your program, those who shout for him day and night. Will he delay long in helping them? Is he going to wait patiently? Is he going to wait forever? I tell you, he will vindicate them. He will quickly grant justice to them. And then the kicker last line, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? I think that last question is, is maybe the most fascinating question Jesus ever asked. Jesus is first here making a classic lesser to greater argument. If even a heartless, godless, unjust judge will bring justice, won't our God do so as well? Our God who is not heartless, our God who is compassionate, God will surely deliver justice. Will not God bring justice? Yes, but God still has not yet brought justice. And because this is true, Jesus asked this last kicker question, will our faith survive while we wait for justice? When the Son of Man comes back, will he find faith on earth? I know that in this room and those watching are people whose faith barely survived by a thread while waiting for justice. And maybe some people who, are, who could not say that their faith has survived, but they're in the conversation. Did you know that the most, I think, or one of the most corrosive threats to faith is injustice? Especially injustice at the hands of religious people. Amen. Everywhere, oppressed people cry out for justice. It is one of our world's most familiar sounds. If you have ever been on your knees weeping for justice, you know what this sounds like. What examples might come to your mind? Here's some that I wrote down. People who had been stolen and taken across the middle passage to slavery. What were their prayers like? Oh God, rescue, rescue us. Today, workers working 40 to 50 hours a week may be making a wage that leaves them poor. Oh God, help me feed my family. Um, Maybe women and children being abused at home, for example. Oh, God, rescue us. Uh, crime victims, family members crying out for justice in a broken system. People who are unjustly arrested and charged and convicted and imprisoned. Oh, God, set us free. People who are defrauded out of their money by criminal corporations or individual scammers. Oh, God, restore my little bit of money that they took. LGBTQ plus people being abused and rejected and discriminated against. Oh God, grant us justice, grant us some mercy. Families that can't get the health care they need for their loved ones during a pandemic because their insurance stinks or they don't have it or they don't have enough money. Oh God, give us health care. Kids who are doomed to go to subpar schools because of how schools are funded based on neighborhoods. Oh God, grant my child 
a decent education. Civilians who are displaced and killed by aggressive wars, oh God, end this war and, and help us survive and let us go back to our homes. Children who are bullied at school because they're different, oh God, can you make this one day be a day where I'm not bullied? What's your list? Oh God, grant us justice. But what does that say to us? We need as followers of Jesus to be as committed to justice as Jesus himself was. We need to care about what the law is like. We need to care about what, how the criminal justice system works in our community. We need to care about a culture uh, of the rule of law or its lack, a culture of corruption or not. We need to care about every institution in our community and understand that part of the mission of the church is the mission of justice. I was revisiting um, this uh, great old book by Gustavo Gutierrez, A Theology of Liberation, one of the first, really, one of the two co-founders of liberation theology. And this was what was in my reading today. Gutierrez says, salvation totally and freely given by God is the communion of people with God and among themselves. And then he says, to work to transform this world is to become a person and to build the human community. It is also part of salvation. To struggle against misery and exploitation and to build a just society is already to be part of the saving work of God in the world. This was seen as a shocking concept in 1975. Today there are still many churches that would find it unfamiliar or unwelcome. And here is Jesus in our passage today saying, Oh God, grant us justice. And you know, Jesus knew a little bit about being a victim of injustice. Do you remember um, what happened to Jesus on a certain night in which he was gathering with his friends? In which he was snatched away by the police on false charges, betrayed, beat up, tortured, spat upon, mocked, flogged, and taken to die a torture execution on a Roman cross. And while there, people were spewing insults further at him, and we see there God who becomes human, who dies the way so many human beings have died, but whose death is the path to the salvation of the world. The one who offered this parable, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth, is the one who said at the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the Jesus that we serve. The one vindicated by resurrection. The one who lives on to create a church whose mission must include the work of justice. I wrote a benediction for you today um, that is my prayer for you based on Luke 18. This is how I will end this message today. To Blue Ocean Church, Ann Arbor. May you be a slice of human community that holds fast to faith in Jesus until he comes again. 
May your faith never be the result of turning your eyes away or shutting your ears to those who cry out for justice day and night. Even if it is the case that this world's authorities delay for a long time in vindicating the oppressed, may this church not ever delay in standing up for those who need justice. May those of you who still have the bitter memory of injustice or the bitter taste even now of injustice in your mouths mobilize your suffering to inspire this congregation to the work of justice. When you are opposed, rejected, or even threatened for doing justice, may you always remember to fear God rather than people. To do God's will despite and in the face of negative consequences for yourself. May you pray always and not lose heart. And may your way of living be a reason why there is faith in Jesus Christ to be found in this community. In the name of that Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, David. We've received that benediction with our whole hearts. I know this is usually when we spend some time, we take a minute or two with either guided meditation or silent prayer, and I think we will spend just a minute or so um, just waiting on the Spirit to speak with us or making space for that, and we'll start with the personal. So maybe with this first minute here, we just invite the Spirit. If there's a place in your heart where you feel like there's been injustice in your life, maybe in the lives of your kids, someone you know, we can just hold that before God and just cry out, give me justice. Give me justice. And then we'll move on into the corporate prayer. So I'll let you know when the time is up, but just come Holy Spirit, be in this space. Jesus, as a people who follow you, may we have the courage to fear God and not fear other people. I know many people waiting for justice have lost their faith. Many of us here may be just tenuous. Maybe it comes in waves. And the picture I had as we were meditating was just that story of the widow offering a mite. And I just thought with whatever little tentative piece that we may still have, Lord, help us to bear witness to the God who cares for the oppressed. 
We offer whatever little amount of faith we have, and we ask that you would just blow on that flame and that you would help us to have the courage to stand with the oppressed and to continue working for justice, even when it feels like some of our culture, some of our laws, some of the different things going on in our society start to make us feel a little bit hopeless or even helpless, and we remember that we serve a God whose power doesn't come by might, Holy Spirit, we thank you for being with us.